Hello and welcome to another special edition of the Political Party as part of this replay series uh, because I'm away for a bit, because I'm in hospital and um, I, I feel like I need to say that at the start of every episode now in case people aren't listening to every episode just so that people know why but don't want it to become repetitive or overshadow um, the, the wonderful joy of uh, another great episode from the back catalogue of the political party. This one is the first time Keir Starmer appeared on the show back in July 2019. Less than a year later, he would become the Labour leader, but at this point he was Shadow Brexit Secretary. And did anyone really think at that point um, that there would be a general election later that year and that it would go the way that it did and that Keir Starmer very quickly would then become leader of the Labour Party? And not just that, but he would preside over the fortunes of the Labour Party in quite such a dramatic way. Um, I remember at the time thinking, this guy is clearly going places and I think he should stand to be leader of the Labour Party. But, I mean, you would never have perhaps known at that point that it was going to happen so quickly and that he would um, become the Prime Minister in waiting so quick. So in, in this interview, he absolutely demonstrates why he is such a formidable politician and why he's gone on and to be so successful as leader of the Labour Party, you can see that it's all there. Uh, and I know this was an interview that when he stood for the leadership, lots of people listened to. Um, this was this was used as a way for, for people to know who he was. And I just remember him being on phenomenal form, being really funny, mega sharp. And obviously that was just in such a contrast, really, to, to all the leaders of the parties at the time. Um, and obviously he's proven that contrast to be such a such an asset since. Um, so even though this is just over four years ago, this feels like an absolute lifetime ago. Enjoy from 2019, the then Shadow Brexit Secretary, Keir Starmer. Thank you very much and welcome back. Ladies and gentlemen, well, very, very excited about tonight's guest um, because he is uh, not only one of the most talented uh, members of Parliament, one of the most talented Labour members of Parliament, for those of us who uh, perhaps aren't getting what we want uh, from uh, <laughs> politics in various ways, he is a, a kind of unique hope, really. One of the most talented members of the Shadow Cabinet and in so many ways, really, effectively the leader of the opposition who's been... <laughs> <laughs> That wasn't even meant to be funny. That was just, um, I, I genuinely meant that. Someone who's properly holding a government to account using fact and using proper parliamentary tactics and strategy, which, you know, we haven't seen for a while. So it's nice to, it's just nice to see a proper politician at, at the uh, opposition dispatch box. So ladies and gentlemen, he has been the MP for Holborn and St Pancras since 2015. He's been the Shadow Secretary of State for exiting the European Union and he is one of the biggest stars in British politics. Please give a huge welcome to Keir Starmer. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Please have a seat. That got a laugh then when I said you were the effective leader of the opposition. So I'm not sure if they were. I'm not sure if they were laughing at the cheek of me being rude to Corbyn or whether they they disagree with my assessment of how talented you are. But um, do you do you feel in a way that you carry the hopes of uh, at least 48 percent of the nation on your <laughs> on your shoulders? Yeah, sometimes it's a bit like that. Um, we've got to. We've got to have both sides represented in this. And um, I, think, I think one of the big things that happened after the referendum was that um, when the Prime Minister set out her red lines, they were so extreme that lots of people who voted to remain felt they'd been sort of pencilled out of the future of the country. And so it was really important, I think, to give... You know, if we're going to give voice, we've got to give voice to both sides. But we have genuinely actually tried to represent both sides in this. Not been easy. 
No. Uh, I mean, there's one thing to represent both sides, uh, and there's one to kind of represent neither. <laughs> I mean, in terms of the party's um, uh, result at the European elections getting less than 14%, do you think that was a verdict to the public on Labour's position on Brexit? <laughs> Look, I mean, the first, let me put in a defence and then accept the challenge. Uh, defence is this. When we went into the 2017 election, everybody said, um, you're trying to, um, by accepting the result, but going for a close sort of relationship with the EU, you're never going to please the Leavers, you're never going to please the Remainers. And they were wrong about that, actually. Because um, as we went into that, everyone's going to, you've really screwed it up, we're going to get 0%. Um, that having been said... When you look at the EU election results, uh, you have to accept um, that there's got to be a change in our position, frankly. Um, you can't have the Labour Party getting less than 10% in Scotland coming fifth for the first time in our history and coming third in Wales behind Plaid um, and uh, pretend that your Brexit policy doesn't need some adjusting. And, uh, you know, I went around the, <laughs> I went around the country and... Um, as you, as you campaign, you know, you, we have these lists, very efficient lists of the Labour Party. It's fantastic. You know, you've got how people voted last time, whether you think they're sympathetic. And then you've got a re, you know, sort of the, the really good ones are marked up as Labour, Labour member. Um, normally, when you go to these doors, um, you're not so much persuading them to vote Labour, because that's kind of taken as red. Um, but you might say, well, will you, will you put a poster up for us in your window? This time, people opening the door saying, well, Labour member, I'm not voting for you, which was um, you know, a bit of a, a shock. Uh, to the system, so... So you knocked on Alistair Campbell's door? <laughs> <laughs> Alistair Campbell is one of my constituents. <laughs> and I always like to, my constituents, I say, let me know what you think. <laughs> uh, and so he does. Uh, <laughs> regularly. <laughs> I mean, the first thing he did when he got his letter expelling him was to phone me up and say, ask my constituency MP, will you write a letter of support for me? <laughs> and did you? Yes, I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I what's going to happen with that? Do you think they'll have to readmit him? I think they will. I mean, you know, um, I don't think it's a particularly good look to um, spend as long as we do on some of the other cases that we have to deal with and, and then to um, eject Alistair so summarily after the results. And after all, he only, all he said was that he voted Lib Dem. Um, so, <laughs> and, and having knocked on doors across the country in the EU, um, if we were to expel every Labour member who voted Lib Dem, our, our proud number of half a million members might, might get a bit of a dent. <laughs> <laughs> but did he, I mean, they, they said that it was, under the rules, it was auto-exclusion. I mean, I, I used to work for the party, and I remember we'd, I remember that rule well, because I would try and <laughs> expel people for it myself, and... That's not really what the rule... I was never able to kind of use the rule in the way that Jeremy Corbyn's been able to use it against Alistair Campbell. There is more to it than that, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, the, the principle is that you can't support another candidate um, at an election, you shouldn't campaign for another party, and that is auto-exclusion. And that's a good reason for that, if you go around saying vote for somebody else. Um, my frustration, I mean, and this is a really serious point, is I've been saying for some time, if we're going to auto-exclude people for campaigning for another party at election we ought to auto-exclude those clear cases of anti-Semitism. Why can't we just have the same rule um, so that yes. you're, you're out straight away? Um, and it, it's, it's such... I mean, I do... I mean, some of those cases are arguable and they've got to go through a process, but some of them are completely unarguable. They're so clear that um, if you said to someone, right, thank you very much, you're expelled, in the same way that that was said to Alistair, 
that would send a really powerful message. And I just think we've got to adjust the rule. If, if, if supporting a Green candidate or a Lib Dem candidate at a, an election is enough to get you excluded, and in Al Alistair's case, expelled for five years, then a, a clear case of anti-Semitism ought to get at least the same sentence, it seems to me. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't think it's a, I think it's a difficult case to argue. No, but it, it doesn't seem to um, fall on the right ears, does it when, it, when it comes to the leadership? They don't seem keen. Well, I mean, we've just been too slow in the whole process, and um, even adopting the international definition of anti-Semitism took the whole of last summer when it could have been done much more quickly. And the great tragedy is, you know, um, Jewish communities across the country are losing faith in the Labour Party, and we need to restore that. And the only way to do that is to demonstrate, in no uncertain terms, what we're going to do in clear case of anti-Semitism. So, so with Alistair Campbell, what, what really struck me about it was, obviously, they were, I imagine, quite keen to get rid of him, and, 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 and that was, the late, that was a, a, a handy excuse. Secondly, uh, what I thought was strange about it, given the obvious uh, parallel with, uh, or the contrast with the anti-Semitism case, was... They're picking a fight with one of the most effective spin doctors alive. <laughs> He's going to keep this story going. And yeah. when he was at his sort of front gate, I just thought he even knows how to give them a different picture. But the whole thing, he knows what he's doing and he's running rings around. Yeah. I mean, I've, you know, I've had a lot of discussions with Alistair over the years. I mean, I, I profoundly disagreed with him about Iraq um, and said so at the time because I, I genuinely thought it was unlawful and we shouldn't be involved in it and wrote about it at the time. But up and down. But on, on things like, you know, um, the work he's done on a, on, on a people's vote, etc., then, you know, it's been good to have those discussions. They've been challenging along the way. Um, but, um, you know, he is Labour and he's been Labour through and through. So um, I don't think we're so smart. Um, to kick him out. No. Um, so, uh, obviously, you face a, a government that's got its own problems as well. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you feel about Prime Minister Boris Johnson? <laughs> I shudder. I mean, the idea... The, the, I mean, where do you start with him? Um, I, think, I think it may... This whole bluff where he sort of ruffles his hair and pretends he doesn't sort of know very much and everyone goes, oh, it's brilliant because underneath he's so clever. Yeah. Um, I actually think it's a double bluff. <laughs> I think, I think he, he wants you to think he's really clever because he's not really clever. Yeah. Um, and so the double bluff is that that is what you get. I mean, I don't know whether you saw the interview with uh, Laura Kunzberg the other day. Yes. Um, it was just guff. Everything he said, that, that on, the, on the serious questions she was asking him, he was just coming out with complete and utter nonsense. Um, and so, you know, do you want that as your prime minister? Preferably not. Um, uh, is, are the EU um, negotiations the most difficult since the Second World War? Yes. Do you want a really good diplomat who knows how to handle other countries? <laughs> yes. What are you getting in Boris Johnson? You know, his reputation when he was Foreign Secretary was absolutely awful. But the, the thing that really gets me about him is this casualness with the truth. Even that picture that came out this weekend of him in Sussex, etc. I don't care what he does in his private life. I really don't. Um, but the fact that that picture came out obviously faked and that he couldn't care less that it's out there at fake. It doesn't even matter that it's fake. This sort of, it, it's beyond bothering to care whether you're telling the truth or not. I think is real. I mean, it all started in the referendum when he, you know, standing in front of the bus with 350 million on the side. This casualness with the truth. I, I genuinely think that you can have a bust up with anyone on politics, but you've got, you've got to accept that there's got to be at least a truthful premise uh, for what you're saying. And once you abandon that, where are you? And so, actually, I thought, the, the interview with Ian Dale, I think it was yesterday, where he was asked 26 times, you know, 
when was it taken? I don't want to intrude on oh, your private Ferrari, life. Yes, oh, Nick yeah. Ferrari, yeah. Um, uh, when was it taken? I don't want to intrude on your private life. And he just wouldn't answer the question. Well, just, well I can't. I, yeah, I, when it was taken, I, I, by the way, I think we should be talking about the issue of Brexit. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then you say, well, let's talk about Brexit. Well, I, I can't. I'll talk about something else. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's constantly, you know, he thinks he's, he's got, a, he's got a, a level of charm but he is exhausting it. Yeah, I'm not sure about the level of charm, actually. I think <laughs> it, it, it doesn't work on me. Um, I keep thinking that the public see through it. Um, I just hope so. I don't really know. I mean, I, I, I think they do. But it's not the public who choose them, is it? I suppose it's Tory party members. Yeah. Who, we, we may have some... Do we have any Tory members here tonight? Sort of... Quiet ones. <laughs> don't want to... <laughs> The Tory shame people, but um, not that it's anything I mean, wrong with it. But it, it is, is pretty. I mean, you know, here, here's someone who's saying he's going to change the tax laws um, and um, you know have tax cuts for those who earn more money. Um, contrary to what their manifesto said, he's going to change the direction of travel on Brexit. He's going to go for no Brexit if necessary, and doesn't feel he's got to face the country to actually get approval for any of that. Just whatever it is, sixty thousand members of the Conservative Party. And it's pretty undemocratic stuff. I mean, in terms of. Him versus Jeremy Hunt. But I, mean, I suppose by definition, if you don't want Boris, you think Jeremy Hunt would be a better Prime Minister? It's a difficult one, isn't it, for me? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, the idea of Boris Johnson being our Prime Minister is really horrifying, you know, because him as the representative... You know, what is a Prime Minister above all? They're the representative of the country. And the idea that we are sort of represented or we are known by um, the, the, the person who is Boris Johnson is really concerning across the world. I mean, Je Jeremy Hunt's got his own problems. Um, but, um, you know, as between the two of them, I think Boris would be a disaster. Also, I just don't think he knows what he's doing on Brexit. He hasn't got any, you know, all the answers he's given are just factually wrong um, and complete nonsense. At what point then do you think, because we, we are living in a period where it feels like the truth has less currency, or, or at least more voters are less bothered that we're living in a more emotional time. I mean, at what point do the rules catch up with him, do you think? Or indeed this era? I, I think they could catch up with him pretty quickly, and I hope they do. In other words, I think within a short period of time, when he's put under you know, scrutiny as Prime Minister, having to answer for things that actually happen, um, it could pretty quickly fall apart. I don't think in the end the public are going to go along with this sort of buffoonery. You can't, you know, you're trying to run the country, you can't muck about. This is not a game. Um, and I think it, it, it will fall apart pretty quickly. But if, if the person scrutinising him is Jeremy Corbyn... It'll be... How? It'll be quick, exact, straight in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what about Jeremy Corbyn? <laughs> but that, that, I suppose that's the problem for people, isn't it? They go, Boris Johnson is a kind of horror for most, for a lot of people. And then they say, well, if it's just him and Corbyn, then Boris, to some people, becomes more attractive. I don't know about that. Um, and, and, and I'll tell you for why. Because when, when Jeremy ran the 2017 um, election campaign, he did really well, and he really cut through to people, I think. And there are, there are things that he is capable of doing which other people can't do. When he went to Grenfell and just um, walked into the crowd and um, hugged people and was with people... Um, that was, that was authentic Jeremy Corbyn, and it's really important to see that. Um, and when he got, I mean, in places like York, he got sort of 6,000 people out. 
Um, he does have an ability to reach people that other politicians don't have. There's no doubt about that. that I mean, that's partly the frustration people had about the EU referendum campaign. But I, I think it's wrong to say that he doesn't have that ability to, 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 to reach people, but also to be contrasted with someone like Boris, because, um, you know, the personalities couldn't be more different. I mean, do you think, whenever it is, but, you know, you're going to sit there and watch Jeremy Corbyn try and hold Boris at the moment to account, and you've seen him try to hold Theresa May and David Cameron to account. Do you ever sit there and think, can I just have a go one week? <laughs> Emily There's a long queue. Emily's in the queue. Rebecca Long Rebecca Longbailey. Um, I think we're probably going to stick with women, so it'll be... It'll be a while. But do you think, do you think like it should be like England friendly? So you're like, give a few other people a call up. So give Starmer a run out. He's, he's Andy. Like, stick him up for oh, the I don't last know about 20 minutes. So you sort of say stick him up. He wouldn't get in the first team, but it's, <laughs> it's only a friendly. It doesn't really matter. No, but then, but then well, the problem is, is that the manager um, doesn't want talented players. That's the problem, isn't it, at the moment, is that... It, well, but that's part of the problem, is, is that if it was merit, then you would absolutely, you'd be, you'd be first name on the team sheet. Well, look, I mean, um, I think... Ben and Starmer up front. <laughs> <laughs> midfield, midfield. Midfield, OK, midfield. So if, if you were a footballer, what sort, what sort of footballer would you be? Who, who would you liken yourself to? Um, well, look, I'm, I still play football, so I consider myself a footballer. <laughs> <Yeah, okay. laughs> Professional. You may, you may disagree if you actually came to watch. Yeah. Um, Midfield, on the left of midfield. So, what, but are you saying like, a, are you midfield in foresight, Vieira or Keane? Uh, well, I'd like to think Vieira and less Keane, but uh, <laughs> as you get older, <laughs> a bit more the Vieira comes out. Okay, so sort of strong, international, of course. <laughs> Francophile. <laughs> I'm just trying yeah. to think, does, that, does the way Patrick Vieira play football translate to the way you do politics? In the middle of the park? In the middle of the park. On the left, shouting a lot of instructions. <laughs> <laughs> Slower than I was. <laughs> Feels better in my head afterwards than um, it was on the pitch. But there are, there are things you can actually learn from football. I, gen I genuinely think this, by the way. Um, because there are, there are just, for amateur football at least, there are just basic rules which really matter, which is as soon as you're on the pitch, nobody gives a damn what you do for a living. And the only rule is don't be an arse. Um, and that's quite a good rule for politics. Don't be an arse. So is this, is this, is this, is this five a side you play or 11 a side? Uh, five a side and eight a side. So how often do you play football? You, every Sunday and sometimes if I can get away with it on a Monday. And is this, is this grass or is this astro? Astroturf. Crikey. Yeah. Hard as nails. <laughs> I don't know about that. You, you would have to come on board. But uh, yeah, no, I've, I've always done this since I was about 10. And who's uh, presumably not the same team you were in? <laughs> no, no, it's all sorts of people I've picked up along the way. Um, friends, people I work with, their friends. And what's the team People's called? sons. Well, we're, now we don't have a name. We just knock about on a, on a Sunday and a Monday. We used to be Homerton Academicals, but that was uh, an 11-a-side team that I played for. East London? East, yeah, Homerton, yeah. Kind of, so is that, are you a kind of Shoreditch kind of guy? No, no, no. She's got quite a cool haircut. So this is this is Kentish Town. <laughs> <laughs> but you, I mean, you, I mean, it, it sounds strange, but you look amazing for fifty-six. <laughs> but you do. Like, nice you're, kind of, you're, you're like you're, you're one of the few stylish MPs. You have got a cool haircut. <laughs> 
Are you sort of aware of that? Do you sit there and think, actually, but, I might not be leader of the opposition, but I'm, I'm better. I kind of turn out better. Now, I got, I, <laughs> now you've raised, I, I, I've got to tell you a story about. I go to the barber around the corner, just on the way to Ed Miliband's house, which is how it is in my constituency. <laughs> um, and the barber's, <laughs> barber's great. He says, you're, you know, you're, you're great, the MP, and all that. And he says, you're going to be Prime Minister. And then he goes, you are Labour, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> and I think, there's only so much you've really been watching this. <laughs> but you, you, you know, I mean, I thought you were younger until I checked your Wikipedia page earlier this week. I'd have put you at mid-40s. This is good. So I'm going to come back. Excellent. <laughs> when you're Prime Minister, hopefully. <laughs> um, I'll be in my mid-30s then. <laughs> <laughs> but do you, um, do you, you sort of, do you feel young in politics? Because you feel, obviously, now that Corbyn's in charge and stuff like that, young is, youth is kind of relative. <laughs> but you know I feel I mean? young in the sense I've only been there five minutes. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was only elected in four and a bit years ago. Um, and so, you know, whatever you've done before you go into politics, however much you think you know, when you get there, it's a completely different ballgame. And you've just got to learn the ropes and the rules, and the rules are all unwritten. So there's a lot of learning to do in that and you do that with the group of people you're elected in with and so I was the 2015 um, intake but you know what's happened in my sort of four years has been incredible because you know when I was standing to be um, the MP for Hope and St Pancras Ed Miliband was leader of our party David Cameron was Prime Minister Nick Clegg was Deputy Prime Minister Obama was President of America um, and, and, and the and the <laughs> And the EU was the Just 11th... Just say Tony Blair and that'll be enough for me. But the EU was the 11th, the 11th most um, uh, important subject to people. It wasn't even in the top yeah. 10. And so somebody shoved about 40 years worth of uh, change into my first four years. So I feel young in the sense I'm learning ropes. I feel old in the sense that so much has happened in that four years, wherever you are in politics. But you, I mean, it's, it's incredible that you've only been there four years because you're, you're such a big national figure, particularly in Labour politics and particularly in the context of Brexit, you're seen really as probably the most prominent opponent of it. I mean, would you ever have thought you'd have that sort of profile? No, no. I thought Ed might just about make me Attorney General within the first five years if we got into government. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm, I'm grounded by, by my kids. We've got a, a boy who's 10 and a girl who's 8. And um, a couple of weeks ago, our 8-year-old girl said, are you going to be in tonight? No. What are you doing, a fundraiser? This was like a slow-motion cross-examination. It was always going to be a disaster. <laughs> What's a fundraiser? Well, a fundraising dinner. Oh, it's people um, come to dinner. Go pay money to come to a dinner to hear someone speak. Next question, of course. Who's speaking? <laughs> uh, me. Why would anybody pay money to... <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's like, you know, when you're getting bold a question and it's blindingly obvious what's coming next. And, I couldn't think of an answer. <laughs> <laughs> He's brutal, isn't he? Straight in there. Being held to account at home. Yeah. No, well, um, no, well, she, you know, she's really good at it. She says, what, what do you do today, Daddy? More blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> My God. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty... So it's quite hard to sort of keep up any sort of pretense of self-esteem. <laughs> so it's a great level. <laughs> so because, I mean, maybe that's in the genes, is it? The kind of... The, the kind of the legal mind. 
Well, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's because she's the younger of the two and she's just out there to make sure she's never going to be a pushover, which is fine. <laughs> it's a good thing. So you, were, you, 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 you studied law and you became Director of Public Prosecution. So I remember you prior to your political career, mainly because uh, you took the excellent decision of um, prosecuting Chris Hoon. Ah, yes. <laughs> he wasn't the only um, politician we prosecuted because all of the expenses files came across my desk. Wow. So we had to look at all of those cases um, and some of those that we didn't prosecute who are still in the House of Commons. So um, there's, uh, yeah, an interesting bunch of cases. And that, do you ever see people? Oh, my God, of course. So do you ever see people in Parliament? Maybe not even expensive ones, but ones that you'd heard stuff about and things. Oh, yeah. And um, <laughs> after... Um, uh, Chris Hume and Vicky Price had been prosecuted and um, been detained by Her Majesty. I went to an event, <laughs> uh, a, a fundraising Ministers dinner, where I, was, I, was, I wasn't speaking. Um, and they said, you're sitting there next to Vicky Price. <laughs> it's been an interesting conversation. And what did she say? Did she say, you bastard? <laughs> she was fine. I mean, she, I don't know why she didn't just spill the beans from the start. And um, it would have been a lot easier for her if she'd done it and just become a prosecution witness. I don't know why she didn't do it. But have you ever spoken to Chris Hoon after? No, no, no. Um, so it must be weird now you've gone into politics, you must think, yeah, I fucking got you, mate. Yeah, yeah like, like, that. like yeah. it was an anti-Lib Dem thing or yeah. something. Yeah. But, I mean, in the end, he, what could you do? It's obvious that um, he'd done what he said he hadn't done. Yeah. <laughs> so do you, get, do you ever get MPs coming to you for legal advice? I mean, you know, off the top of my head, Fiona on a Sanya. <laughs> <laughs> Does she say, look, I know you know cases like this. What do I yeah. need to do to... What's my best defence? <laughs> Not the one you're running. <laughs> <laughs> do they ever come to you and go, Keir, look? You do get a bit of that. You do get a bit of that. And then you, also, because we all do advice surgeries on a Friday, which are really important, um, where any constituent can come, first come, first serve, with any issue that they've got. And they're really serious and um, um, very many tragic cases in there. But quite a lot of people worked out that I'm a QC, and I thought, well, I'll pop along and get a bit of advice on the law. <laughs> Since he says he has a first-come, first-served uh, policy, I'll go and see what he has to say about this. But um, the other case in there are very, very serious. Great. So do you, do you get um, other... Is it always Labour MPs come to you, or will, like, the odd Tory or someone No, else? the odd Tory, yeah. I mean, I, I tend to get, across, get on with people across the house um, because um, I don't have the sort of tribal stuff so much as other people do. And also, quite frankly, in the last you know, two, three years, we've had to work across the house to get any of the victories we've had on Brexit. And so, um, you know, and Dominic, someone like Dominic Grieve, he was Attorney General when I was yes. Director of Public Prosecution. So um, I actually worked with Dominic um, in that capacity before I even got to the House of Commons. So it's been the whole meaningful vote thing was something which he and I worked very hard on um, together. So, yeah. So can you use that, can you use your legal expertise as currency then? In, in Parliament, can you say, look, I know you're going to vote for the, uh, for the deal, but I know you have an undisclosure agreement. I can give you <laughs> high-end legal <laughs> advice. I mean, you could, I mean, legally, you'd be, Boris would need you. Yeah, I mean, it, um, it is, it's extraordinary. I mean, it, the, the change from law to politics and how you might use law in politics is, is, is incredible because... You know, as a lawyer, um, you, there are rules about how you present a case. You have to put the evidence before the court. Um, and then an independent judge or jury makes a decision. 
Um, and politics has none of that. <laughs> and so it takes a bit of a, a, a getting used to. But before you leave the DPP thing, there is one thing I just, just, just for a laugh, because it was so funny. Um, within about a year of becoming DPP, um, a man put, called Paul Bint started impersonating me um, and uh, started answering Lonely um, Hearts columns in the Sunday <laughs> Times as Keir Starmer, the DPP. This is a long, I won't tell the whole story because it, it is very funny and very long. Um, and in that capacity, he started an affair with two women saying, I'm Keir Starmer, I'm the DPP. I know Tony Blair was one of his chat up lines. Um, and, All right, we won't use it, mate. <laughs> <laughs> And, and these, these two women sort of fell in love with him. Um, but, but Paul didn't have a lot of money, um, but thought, you know, I know what makes a relationship work. You have to give jewellery. So he hit upon the idea of take, nicking the jewellery of one of them um, and giving it to the other, <laughs> and vice versa. <laughs> so so th these two women swapped their jewellery sets, oh unbeknownst God. to them. Um, and um, eventually, he did all sorts of other things. He took long taxi rides in my name. He, he tried to buy a house in Buckinghamshire for three million quid in my name, and then a piece of art um, for 80,000 quid in my name, which is when I first got to know of him, because the art um, uh, uh, dealer phoned up CPS headquarters to see whether I was going to complete on the deal. Eventually, he was arrested and prosecuted, um, etc. But of course, as the Crown Prosecution Service had to take the decision whether to prosecute him. <laughs> so the team said to me, well, since you're the victim, you can't be involved. I said, fine, just tell me the answer to three questions. Is he pleading not guilty? Is his defence that he is Keir Starmer, the DPP? <laughs> and where do I stand if the jury acquit him? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my! And you should goodness. never wish for a conviction. You really shouldn't, because it's a it's a genuinely independent um, post. Yeah. But I, I was quite relieved when, in the end, the jury said, "You're not Keir Starmer. Bad luck." <laughs> so, have, have either of the women ever got in touch with you and said, and, "This is a, we're going"? No, they haven't. But of course, at trial, they had to give evidence, and um, they were asked, uh, "You know, when when you saw Paul Bint, did you not think?" you know, this doesn't look anything like Keir Starmer. Yeah. <laughs> and one of them said, well, I had my suspicions, but everybody can have a bad day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, it's... Um, that it, was, it was been, an odd one. It was an odd one. That must have been so stressful, especially as you were impersonating Dominic Grieve at the time. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was quite something, yeah. Does that, I mean, in that, did, when you're having, it's such a public role, it's such an important role, the Director of Public Prosecutions. At what point in that tenure did you start harbouring political ambitions? Um, for me, I mean, I, I joined the Labour Party when I was a teenager, so a long history in the Labour Party, and then obviously did a lot of work on international human rights, where um, across the world we're fighting things like the death penalty and, and free speech in other countries. Um, and actually then worked with the police board in Northern Ireland on implementing some of the Good Friday Agreement, which was um, an incredible period. Oh, so that's when you first met Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> so that, that, what, that was incredible. I mean, you know, now, now we're really worried about the Good Friday Agreement. That, that was an incredible period because we were, over five years I was there, trying to transform the RUC, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, into the police service of Northern Ireland. Um, massive change. 
and in particular to get Catholics into the police service because no Catholics would join the RUC for obvious reasons. And that meant getting Sinn Féin onto the policing board. So it was a real eye-opener to how you could work with certain institutions on Good Friday Agreement, etc., to make some real change. And that, that made me want to work nationally, if you like. And then um, the thing that really did it for me was the cuts and austerity and taking the money out of public services because I... You know, I could accept that you could take 5% out of certain public services, but when it got to 20, 25, 30, even 40%, you can't run public services on cuts of 40%. It's blindingly obvious. And I genuinely thought and do think that um, the coalition government um, and the government since 2010 with austerity is ripping up um, what I consider to be a really important part of the post-war settlement in terms of welfare public services, and just the way that we treat each other in society, supporting people who need support and providing opportunities to people. I mean, it sounds all, you know, apple, motherhood and apple pie, but it's really, really, really important to me. And so that, that's what persuaded me. The only way in the end to deal with this is to go into politics and change the world and get those public services sorted out, and then I got Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> so do you, were, you, were you a radical young man when you first joined the party? Were you, did you have a beard? <laughs> is that the definition? Well, sort of, isn't it? I mean, it's no, kind I, was of goes the, with I was in the East Surrey Young Socialists uh, with three others. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Johnson. <Dunn. laughs> it, it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, it, we, we were very radical. But we weren't very big. Um, uh, and then I went to Leeds University, where it got a bit more serious and sort of frontline stuff. But uh, yeah, East Surrey Young Socialists. It's got a bit bigger now, but it wasn't. I mean, we all had various executive positions because <laughs> there were only four of us. <laughs> But have you been, as, as so many Labour politicians have, on a journey? Did you start out as a Marxist and then become a Social Democrat, or have you always been around the same area? No, I, I mean, I started, um, I would say, on the left of the party, as, as I think most people do. Um, and in, I was really struck with the, and got into politics at the time, the sort of social movement stuff, and the, 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 the struggle Labour was having of embracing not just the sort of traditional working class trade union base, but also, um, you know, equality across sexism, across homophobia, across different strands of equality, um, you know, whatever that strand was, and, and bringing it together, whether it's green, disabled people, um, and that struggle to make the Labour Party the sort of party of people who um, were fighting for equality as well as just a sort of um, a class-based, very important class-based organisation. So I was in the middle of that, and I, I thought that was really exciting. I thought it was really important, I, and I thought that um, equality and dignity were at the heart of all of that, and that's what um, the Labour Party needed to be if it was going to be a serious political player in the sort of, um, you know, then the 80s and into the 90s, and certainly in, into the 21st century now. So that, that's where I was. You know, I would say on the radical left there, I mean, other people have judged for themselves. Um, and, but even now, I mean, you know... I, I genuinely believe that um, we need to be more radical than we are in terms of the transformation of our country. I think if, if the referendum's taught us anything, it ought to be that millions of people who voted in particular to leave were voting because they were telling us the political and economic system isn't working for them. Um, and they're right about that. I mean, without going to the, get any report on inequality that's been published in the last five years, and they all tell you the same thing, which is equality in every 
way is getting worse, not better. And, and that's not just wealth and income, but you know, health, regional inequality, inequality of influence over politicians like me and others. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And in I'm Hoban St Pancras is my constituency, which is basically most of Camden. Um, the life expectancy difference between Primrose Hill, um, which is obviously um, very well off, um, and Somerstown, which sits between Euston and King's Cross, which is very deprived, is 10 years. Can you believe that? 10 years. I, I could, you know, honestly, I couldn't believe it when I uncovered that. I expected that kind of life expectancy difference to be across a continent. Yes. Not within a constituency. Um, and that's got to change. And actually, that's quite a unifying thing, because I think I obviously campaigned and voted to remain, but I've not met many people who voted to remain who are not up for some pretty fundamental change to um, that sort of power of wealth that's in the wrong place at the moment. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B, and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. So given that, that Brexit is the, is the biggest threat to being able to invest in public services and all the rest of it, um, take us into the shadow cabinet then. And, and, that, and, and that, that process of... I think one of the great things you've been able to do is incrementally, it seems to me, get Corbyn to a more pro-Remain stance of some sort. It feels like you've been the number one pressure on, on dragging him. Is it, would that be accurate? Uh, there's... An element of that. Um, I mean, we've certainly changed. I mean, we've, we have shifted and moved our position, and that's been hard work at times. Frustrating. There's, you know, sometimes I've felt that I should sort of build a brick wall in my room to hit my head against so that I don't have to go outside so often to do it. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, bringing, bringing the party to what I consider to be a better position has been um, a really important thing over the last two years. And we, we, we moved a long way. Um, we could go a bit further. Yeah. Um, but uh, we've moved a long way. But how much of your job really is, because I, you've got a dual role, uh, if, and I may be wrong, but it seems to me that you know, you, you're there to hold the government to account on what happens in Brexit, but you also seem to be there to kind of present Labour's position in a more coherent way perhaps than others could, and also to at least provide some remain scent or flavour that Labour's front bench would otherwise miss. Yeah, I mean, I, let me just take this one head on because it is, it is serious and it is really important because um, yeah, it's a journey, a journey the, the word that's so overused. Um, but for me, I mean, I... When I was DPP, I was the UK representative in Eurojust. So I worked within an EU agency. 
when I was doing international human rights work, I was doing it with the EU across the world. Um, and um, I genuinely believe in collaboration and cooperation, whether EU partners, I think it's a very good thing to deal with threats and actually take opportunities. So I was very um, keen that we won in 2016 and pretty devastated when we didn't. Um, and that was difficult. I mean, our kids are young. And the day after the referendum, I spent, before they went to school, a bit of time with my young kids and just thought, what kind of world are you going to grow up in? And um, I was really worried about tolerance and looking inwards. But I felt that um, we had to accept the result. We'd, we'd voted to have a referendum. We couldn't, just because we got the wrong result, say we don't accept it. Um, and that meant that we had to trigger Article 50 and let the Prime Minister do the negotiations. Now, we, there was a lot of, a lot of people disagree with that, uh, but I genuinely think that was the right thing to do. Um, but equally, it was right for us to say, um, when you come back in two years, we're going to judge what you come back with by these six tests which I set out, sort of taking a leaf out of Gordon Brown's book in terms of um, tests. Prime Minister came back with a deal that doesn't get anywhere near those tests. It's been voted down three times. Um, we then went into cross-party talks with the government. Um, they failed, um, mainly because we took the view the government couldn't deliver on it, and frankly because you could never lock it against someone like Boris Johnson coming in. Um, and, you know, I have no um, problem now with the idea that in those circumstances, particularly when you look at EU results, the only safe and right and proper thing to do now is to say that whatever the outcome is, whatever deal the next Prime Minister manages to negotiate, if if he does, or no deal, you've got to put this back to the public to see whether they consent to us leaving on those terms and give them the option of remaining if they don't so consent. I think that's, it's a long explanation, but it's a genuine reflection on where I think we are, which is why I don't have any hesitation in saying that um, at this stage it's perfectly justifiable and right to say this has got to go back to the public so that they can sign it off or not according to what they now think of the situation that we face. And it's not a judgment on what people may have voted three years ago either way. It's just um, there's not a deal that's going through that's any good, and we've got to confront the situation that we're in front of. Now, that's, that's where we've got to. Some of that journey we could have done a bit more quickly, um, in my view, but it, it is actually, I think, um, the right position to, for us to get to. But it's also the mood music, isn't it? Jeremy Corbyn doesn't want to say the words. Um, do you talk to him often? Do you say, Jeremy, look, it, it's not only is it, it Labour's uh, ideological um, position, but it is a, a sort of moral duty, or indeed, in terms of Labour's rating in the polls, yeah. politically expedient to be explicitly remain. Yeah, I do. Or second vote. I mean, you know, I talk to Jeremy all the time. I actually personally get on very well with Jeremy. There's no um, issue between us at all, and we have um, pretty frank exchanges. I mean, my position is... Um, that you know, in a changing world, particularly with the geopolitics going on with um, Trump and Russia and China, um, Europe, Europe is where we are geographically, but it's also where we are in terms of history and values. I mean, if you know, the, the world is two hundred countries, but there are only four or five real sort of power bases or magnets, spheres of influence, and they're America, China, Russia, um, Asia, arguably, and Europe. And which one, which sphere of influence do we belong to? we belong to Europe. That's where our shared values are. Um, and you know, whether it's threats or whether it's opportunities, collaboration and cooperation, whether EU partners are really important. But the other thing that really, really strikes me, and that I think does strike Jeremy more than people appreciate, is our socialist and democratic 
sister parties and politicians across Europe are desperate for us to be with them in the struggle that they are going through, which politically is not that different from ours mm. because populism, nationalism, um, a sort of right-wing um, ideology has taken hold in most European countries to different degrees. Um, and they're desperate for us to be on the international stage fighting with them. So it's not just electorally would it be better or worse. It is in principle um, where, as international socialists and Democrats, we should be placed, it seems to me. And that, you know, that's where I think it needs to come from. But it needs, it needs to be done with confidence and on the front foot. Um, it can't be done on the back foot, it seems to me. So when you say this to Jeremy, what does he say? <laughs> <laughs> I mean... On the international stuff, I mean, he, he is a big internationalist, um, but... Um, well, with Iran and Russia. <laughs> uh, the, more, the more... I mean, Jeremy's done a lot of work with the Party of, Econo uh, of, of European Socialists, and so um, he does get all that bit, but um, we, do, we do have conversations about it, and I do encourage him that we could move nice and quickly and um, determinedly on this. And we're nearly there. <laughs> <laughs> so on the six tests, did you say to him, I think we should set these six tests and I'm going to write them? And did he say, fine, get on with it? Did he say to you, can you come up with six tests? How did that work? No, it's, it was, it was uh, my idea and we wrote them. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, and Jeremy was very comfortable with them. They were actually all taken from things the government said it was going to achieve. They weren't sort of plucked out the air. Um, luckily, David Davis was the um, Brexit secretary at the time, so it's quite easy to come up with um, uh, things that they'd said. Um, and, uh, you know, particularly things like the exact same benefits of being in the customs union, the single market. That was his, um, uh, that was his coming. But, I mean, he was, I mean, he was the first. I've had three Brexit secretaries. He was the first one. Um, and he sort of take me, take me aside and say, well, no, the thing is, Keir, um, it's a big mistake to know any detail. Uh, you, oh you, you get bogged down in all of that. Um, you know, I think it's you know it's big picture stuff. You know, what you've got to remember is, seriously, the German car industry is so dependent on the UK that in the end the EU will crack and crumble under our pressure and give us whatever we want. My God. Um, and and so it didn't prove to be. <laughs> <laughs> so in the cross party talks then. Because that was fascinating to watch, because you thought, surely, Cor no matter how good the offer is, surely Jeremy Corbyn's not going to go down in history as the Labour leader that basically props up Theresa May and gets this Tory Brexit through. In what spirit were you engaging in those talks? Oh, um, in earnest. I mean, I, I, joking apart, I don't think anybody should underestimate the, the pressure we all feel under to break the impasse. Yeah. Being in Parliament day in, day out, um, obviously getting nothing done, arguing about a deal, voting it down, and then arguing about it again, then voting it down again. Um, and everybody looking in saying, you know, um, what a mess. Um, that's what everybody says all the time. There is a genuine, you know, friend or foe, they say, yeah. um, you know, what a mess. The pressure, I think, we all felt, including myself, to break the impasse was pretty huge. I mean, I was never sure about the cross-party talks because... Um, the first I knew we were going into them was when the Prime Minister announced it on telly. Um, and I thought, had this been thought through, she'd have probably said to somebody like David Liddington a few days before, well, can you give Kira a ring on a sort of confidential basis and see whether Labour all, you know, are up for this? And then immediately she finished speaking on that night. I got phone calls from um, uh, Michel Barnier's team saying... 
did you know about this Kia? <laughs> Which obviously revealed to me that they didn't know anything about it either. But we did go into it, you know, in the hope that we might break the impasse. But in the first meeting we had, I said to Theresa May, um, whatever you think of going back to the public, a confirmatory referendum, if you want a stable majority, you're going to have to embrace it because you're not getting a majority now of Labour MPs on board if you don't have um, uh, an ability to go back to the public on this. Um, and she simply said, I'll, I'll focus on the substance for now. <laughs> and that was it. But, you know, so we, we were trying to find a way through. I mean, there, there was a way through if she could have held the numbers, which is to say, um, put her deal to a confirmatory vote, because then you don't need to argue about whether the deal is technically absolutely what everybody would agree on, which is almost impossible. Because people could say, well, it's not imperfect. I myself don't particularly like it. But since it's subject to a lock of a confirmatory vote, um, at least we can go forward. Yeah. I mean, it was a very clever, um, the, the Peter Carl, Phil Wilson um, thing was actually a clever way to break the impasse. Um, but the Prime Minister never engaged in that and, and probably could never have delivered on that. And that, that would have broken the impasse, because then you could go to the country and say, well, you can either have this deal that's been negotiated, um, or you can remain. And how, in those cross-party talks then, so there's three or four of you from either side, like, is there small talk at the start? Well, it's, there, there is. It's, it's really embarrassing. Um, it's like sort of meeting your partner's parents. Uh, I mean, and there are different characters around the table. I mean, David Liddington, I genuinely like and respect, mm. and I think he's respected across the country, uh, across Parliament. You know, Michael Gove, not so much. <laughs> um, and, then, and then you've got the tensions between them, because we had... Um, Stephen Barclay um, in there and Greg Clark and Philip Hammond. And so it's, to see them on the other side of the table was interesting, to see their different faces when you know, David Lidington might be leaning into a position that we wanted. But the, the most telling thing was the first time we went, had these really fantastic sandwiches. It was a sort of a complete spread. Um, and then the next time, the sort of lesser grade sandwiches. <laughs> Eventually, the sandwiches were removed. And by the time we got to the last meeting, the sort of water and then the sort of digestive biscuits. <laughs> so you, you got the sense this wasn't heading in the right direction. They should have given you beer. Yeah, beer and sandwiches. Yeah, some wine or something like that. Yeah. Just get the, you know, a bit of whiskey. Just get it. Get yeah. tongues wagging a bit. Loose some people up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So how long would those discussions last uh, in, per session? Four or five hours. And long, a, long oh, sessions. And are, are people, do, I mean, everyone has a different responsibility, but before you go in, do you go, right, uh, you're going to take notes, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, and how, if that does happen, how, um, how long until that sort of breaks down and people do start talking on the things they said they weren't going to talk about? Um, well, you do, you do go in with a, a plan, hopefully, of who's going to say what, but it does break down pretty quickly because um, different points come out across the table. The, big, the biggest issue was genuinely how, you know, by the time the Prime Minister got round to picking up the phone to saying, will you go into cross-party talks, she'd already said she was stepping down. Mm. And that's a massive problem because um, even if we could have done a deal with her, the test was how on earth are you going to bind the person who's going to take your place in a matter of weeks. And that was impossible to answer. Um, and the, the, the genuine tragedy is that that didn't happen two years earlier. It sh you know, my, amongst the big criticism of Theresa May, I mean, she got red lines completely wrong, but she didn't, she didn't appreciate that she was never going to get a deal through her own party because they'd been arguing about Europe for 40 years um, and that she was going to need 
to involve us, and therefore that um, that sort of reaching out needed to happen. I thought it was going to happen. It was quite a funny story after the 2017 election because um, obviously Theresa May had lost her majority. And in the immediate days afterwards, when we were thinking what was going to happen, um, I was at home with my wife and then looked at my phone. There was a missed call from David Davis. Um, and she said, that's them phoning about cross-party working on this. Um, in the end, it wasn't. It was David telling me more about BMWs and how, <laughs> in the end, the Germans would crack. <laughs> and it'll all, be, it'll all be all right. But, but that was the point. I mean, seriously... Yes. To open cross-party talks after, after the 29th of March, it's not at the 11th hour, it was after midnight, and when you've already done the deal, which can't be changed very much, um, was a tragic misjudgment. So are you, bit, are you able in those talks to be really frank with each other? With, with our own side. Well, <laughs> not so yeah, well, yeah, either side. Can you say to them, you know this is nonsense? At times, yeah. Yeah, it was quite frank in places. And would, would you pick them off against each other? Would they contradict each well, other? We didn't have to because they're picking each other off um, most of the time. So, you know, David Lydon could say something and then Julian Smith, the chief whip, would sort of pull a face. <laughs> we haven't got the numbers for that. Um, so there was a bit of that going on across the, the table. But they, they were genuinely um, in good faith in an attempt to move things forward. And would you ever have to kind of... Um assert yourself with your own team, would, would people ever say stuff that maybe wasn't policy or you weren't comfortable with that you'd then ha maybe have to clarify politely? Well, you're sort of, you're, your toes are curling under the, under the desk. Yeah. <laughs> Shall I just take a... Um, most of the time it was right. But, <laughs> but on those occasions, when it wasn't, how do you handle that then? How do you handle sitting in a negotiation knowing that what, someone on your own side is saying something that maybe they're overstepping the mark or they're saying something that's not accurate. How do you tactfully handle Diane Abbott in a situation like that? <laughs> <laughs> I, and gently steering the, the ship back on course <laughs> has been a large part of, I mean, the one thing I've had to learn a lot in the last four years is patience and more patience um, and then a bit more patience as we, as we steer this one through. In terms of your relationship with your opposite number, then, it's always, it's always nice to know that people get on. As you say, you've been through three Brexit secretaries. It sounds like David Davis, if nothing else, was a kind of good laugh. Yeah, it, 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 it was a good laugh and, um, and, and was capable of laughing at himself. And so um, just before he actually resigned, I said to him at one of our question sessions in Parliament, I said, I said I've been totting up. Um, I think you've threatened to resign more times than you've met Michelle Barnier. <laughs> <laughs> and he just laughed it off. It was perfectly true. Um, but um, then we got Dominic Raab. And my takeaway on Dominic was an absolute inability to laugh at himself. Mm. And, and, um, and you've got to be able to laugh at yourself, I think, in any walk of life. But particularly if you're the Brexit secretary. Because <laughs> uh, you know, lots of things are likely to go very wrong. <laughs> and actually laughing at yourself is really important. And... You know, he was... Because I mean, there's that famous... I don't know whether you saw that picture of David Davis when he arrived for the first session of the negotiations. Yeah. You have Michel Barnier and his team with sort of lever-arch files all marked up. Um, and there's David with his, with his sort of glasses case. <laughs> um, and, and this theory that it's better if you don't know the detail. 
Um, and then you had Dominic Raab, who was determined to show that he was the complete opposite of that. And, you know, he was the, he was the lawyer, he knew all the detail, he was going to be in Brussels um, the whole time. And, um, and so he was, uh, mainly causing havoc because um, Ollie Robbins couldn't get on with the job of negotiating. And, it, and he's, I'm all over the detail, I know every bit of the detail, you know, I'm Dominic Raab, I'm a lawyer, you know, here it is. Um, and and the, the, the fatal flaw was when he came back and read what he'd negotiated and then resigned. <laughs> didn't agree with it. <laughs> um, and that was the end of him. And then we got Steve um, Barclay, who's the current Brexit secretary, whose claim to fame so far um, was when we were doing, back in March, seems like a long time ago now, we were pushing motions to extend Article 50. And the motion before the House was to extend Article 50 and the Prime Minister was supporting it. And he stood at the dispatch box to, and said, I commend the motion to the House, which is meant to mean go and vote for it for an extension of Article 50. And then he went into the um, booth to vote against it. <laughs> <laughs> but the one thing I'll say about Steve Barclay in seriousness and about Julian Smith, the Conservative Chief Whip, is that um, in the middle of those um, moments in November, December, when it was very tense, uh, my dad was very ill and then died, um, which obviously is difficult for anyone, but it's difficult when you're in that position. Both Stephen and Julian Smith wrote me on the day very personal letters about that, not just condolences, but um, you know, about what had happened when their father had died and things like that. And that was a real moment. So whatever I might do in sort of taking the mickey out of um, Steve and others, actually sometimes in there there's a real human being. And that really, really matters. It's nice to remember that, isn't it, to, to you know, however the harsh these divisions are. I saw a lovely photo on Twitter earlier of... You know, the stop Brexit guy. Steve. Stop Brexit. A picture of him. Steve Baker and Mark Francois. Yeah, I saw went that. Went to wish him happy birthday. Yeah. And they've had a photo taken together. Just like, I almost cried looking at that. Yeah. It's, uh, Mark it's Francois, a Francois, all right. <laughs> well, I won't go that far. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's, that was a very strange picture. It just reassures you a bit, doesn't it? Because I think sometimes the tone that politicians take rubs off on the public a bit. Yeah. And actually forget that actually a lot of politicians do have a healthy relationship with each other. And even though there are the harsh contentions, behind the scenes there is a, a level of diplomacy, even in Brexit, even in the Labour Party. Yeah, it depends who it is. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but by and large, those relationships are better than you might think. And um, quite a lot of the time, the only way you're going to get things done if you, if you work in that collaborative way. So it does pay off. I, mean, I often ask people who their who their you know who their favourite people are on the opposite benches, but given the state of the Labour Party, probably more probably more provocative to ask you who on your own side um, <laughs> you, you like the most. But who are, who are the Tories that you can kind of get on with? Um, Dominic Grieve, I know really well. Get on with him. Tom Tugendhat and I came in um, together, so I know him pretty well. Um, and a, a lot of them, um, particularly the twenty fifteen intake. I get on with very well, um, partly because, as I say, when you come into politics, you think you're this, that and the other, but actually you know nothing um, and you do have to learn the ropes together. And partly that 2015 intake on both sides and all sides are bound together tragically um, because one of our intake, Joe Cox, didn't make it. Mm. Um, and, all, you know, there's something about the group that you're elected with. Um, and obviously on our side, we're very close to Joe. Um, but Tories as well, because, you know, she reached out across the party um, more than anyone probably in our intake. 
And so there is, there's a, there is actually a bond in that 2015 intake, which is, is arguably deeper than some of the other intakes, just because of that. Um, and I think that's real. I wonder what that means for the future then, whether as an intake you're more likely to... I mean, obviously, any intake of MPs, some of them are going to go on to great things, but I wonder if that... I wonder if there'll be documentaries made about the class of 2015. I don't know. I, d I genuinely don't know. Um, and, 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 and it may well be, if you get someone else into interview, they'll tell you the class of 2010 or 2017 has got the same yeah. characteristics, and it may be that we all just see it because that's the particular group we came in with. But there is something about learning the ropes together, um, and then there is something about when something like Joe Cox happens, which is pretty profound for everybody, that does bind people together in a way that um, is obvious, it seems to me. Mm. So in terms of your own side then, I mean, one of the, one of the fascinating things about, the, you know, the reports we hear from the PLP and the Shadow Cabinet is that Corbyn may be kind of slow to react, but that John McDonnell is far more nimble, it seems, in saying what Labour Remainers want to hear, and he's, he's often, you know, on, on the media outlets, been far more clear than Jeremy Corbyn is. I mean, is McDonnell just perhaps a, a better politician and, and with better instincts, or, and if both could be true, is he on manoeuvres? Uh, the two can go together. Um, the, I mean, I, I actually think it, John is a really good communicator, and I think he's some of the stuff he's doing on the economy is really important, and he's doing a lot of work on it, and I think that's really good. Um, and I, my sense is that lots of people, when they hear John, think this guy's talking a lot of sense. Mm. I think John also um, was struck by the fact that in 2017, we nearly won. You know, we started that election with everybody with a head in their hands, and then we nearly won. And um, for John, that, uh, I think, made him absolutely focus on being completely pragmatic about how we win next time. Mm -hmm. I think more than anybody else, he has focused on, we've got to win, we've got to change things. And, um, and that inevitably brings a degree of pragmatism with it um, in the way that um, he goes about the politics. I think it's a good thing, by the way. Um, but um, it is really interesting. Um, I think when people listen to John on the radio or on the telly, they find themselves agreeing with him more than they're disagreeing with him. Yeah, and then they find out who he is and they go... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there is that. I hear him sometimes think, God, who's this? And you go, oh, John McDonald. But he, he, he's got skills, there's no doubt. Yeah. I mean, what he shares, and what Tom Watson is another Labour figure who's kind of out there. Um, what they both share is they have both started to talk a lot quieter than they used to. Yeah, I'm not sure what that's all about. Tom, in particular. I can very... When he's on telly, I can barely... Labour is a Remain party. <laughs> and I think we've got to be very clear with people that we do support... Yeah, talk up, Tom, for fuck's sakes. Brexit, mate. There's, there's a... and, and John McDonnell obviously used to scream and shout, talk through gritted teeth a lot. Yeah, And yeah. it's bloody serious, actually, what the Tories... <laughs> they're both men sound like they're trying to control themselves because if they don't, they will scream their heads off. <laughs> Yeah, that's a really good observation. I'm going I'm to ask them both about that now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, particularly Tom, who does um, very, very soft voice now. Because that's, that's someone trying to contain themselves, isn't it? That's like a gangster in a film. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a really, I'm a really nice guy. <laughs> yeah, it's because they're trying to not... Nothing to fear here. I mean, do, you, do you have anything to do with Tom Watson's future Britain group? or Is that what it's called? Not directly with that group, no. But I've talked to Tom and everybody. Across the party, and have you ever? Been I like. I mean, I genuinely try to talk to everybody across the party because, in the end, 
Um, part of my job is to try to get everybody into the same lobby at the same time when we vote, which is the devil's own job. <laughs> <laughs> so most, most you know, good part of my job is sort of counselling people and, and cajoling people. And do, um, have you ever been tapped up by the Lib Dems or changed? Did they say, look, here, come on, you're a sensible guy? Nope. And I wouldn't go. Absolutely wouldn't go. And change, I've not been a particularly good advert for um, what happens if you do. You know, I, I was genuinely worried when um, they set up as to whether any more Labour MPs would go, which I did think would be really bad for, for the Labour Party for very obvious reasons. But they screwed it up so badly that I think the general feeling in Labour is it's, it's cold out there and it doesn't look too good. Yeah, or join the Lib Dems. Or jo well, um, yes. <laughs> Chuck has been through, I think, well, Labour, Change UK, Independent and Lib Dems now. Yeah. In, six months, which is interesting. Well, you know, sometimes it's like that. You know, I'm like that sometimes with a pair of jeans. I don't really fit. I, I know, but there is, there, there, there is an argument, isn't there? There's a, when someone swaps parties, there is always this argument, well, shouldn't you stand for a by-election? Yeah. I think you've been through four changes in six months. There might be a case for saying, for heaven's sake, you might want to check with those people <laughs> that voted for you, whether they're voting for Labour, for change, for Independent or Lib Dem, you know. But, do, I mean, is there anything that would make you leave the Labour Party? No. Nothing at all? So even with... So Chris Williamson's had his suspension lifted, he's back. I saw that. Yeah. And that really worries people. Yeah. Does, does that. that sort of the anti-Semitism stuff, the fact that it's still not being taken seriously, does that not make you think, actually, I'm going to help put a guy into Downing Street who might be anti-Semitic? No, it just makes me more determined that we're going to do something about it. Um, you, you, I, I genuinely... I mean, the Labour Party is a massive um, movement... You know, obviously, Labour Party, trade union movement, and all those movements I was talking about, it's achieved great things. And I don't think there's going to be a political force like it for a very long time. And therefore, abandoning the Labour Party is to abandon um, wanting that progressive change. There are challenges, of course there are. I mean, on anti-Semitism, we've just got to redouble our efforts the whole time. You know, you don't walk away from those things. Um, but I strongly think you've got to stay in and fight it and not leave... Um, and that's the argument I have to have with members who are telling me the whole time that they want to leave the Labour Party in my own constituency, which is stay in and fight, don't leave. But ha the thing is, Chris Williams said, it seems the way it was done, you know, it was this sort of three-member NEC panel, it wasn't the, the usual constitution of, of these things. It does feel like this is Jeremy's will being enacted, that if he really didn't want Chris Williamson to be an MP, just as Alistair Campbell could be immediately expelled, if, if Corbyn said to the NEC, I don't want Williamson about... They'd have enacted that. Well, I actually think I've been wrong. I mean, I don't. I mean, I think that you should have an independent panel, and you shouldn't have the leader of the Labour Party interfering in it with it, whoever they are. It should be an independent panel. So I don't think. Um, I know there've been some leaked emails um, about this, but I genuinely don't think the leader of the Labour Party should be involved. If you're going to have an independent process, have an independent process. That process needs to work more quickly, etc. But my biggest concern about um, Chris Williamson and the other cases like it is. Um, the denial of anti-Semitism is a massive part of the problem. Mm. And, and, you know, it, there's the obvious case of anti-Semitism, then there's a group of people say we haven't got a problem. And that, that, is, that is a massive part of the problem. And, and, and you know, and, it, and it, it, it comes from a place where people are saying, well, um, they're making it up, aren't they? Um, and as soon as you go to that place, you realise just what that is full of. Um, and so, you know, both you know, in my own um, constituency and across the country, I've railed against those, as much against those that deny we've got a problem as those that are obviously, obviously anti-Semitic. 
mean, is there not a danger then that even if the leadership aren't explicit in what they want, that the NEC, which is as pro-Corbyn as it's ever going to be, and is absolutely in the favour of the leadership more than any time probably in its history, that they would act according to what they think Jeremy's wishes would be? I hope not. I hope not. But, um, you know, let's face facts. We're being investigated by the Equalities and Human Rights Commission for anti-Semitism. This is a low moment. Um, you know, as a human rights lawyer, I championed the Equalities and Human Rights Commission. I championed the fact that they should be able to interview witness, uh, witnesses, that they should be able to subpoena documents, because I wanted them to get to the heart of um, you know, unlawful discrimination and lack of equality. And I thought they needed those powers. It didn't dawn on me for one second that those would be being used against the Labour Party. Um, and and you know, we've got a choice in this. We either reluctantly accept that they're investigating us and begrudgingly um, comply, or we say, and this is what we should do, look, we've been trying to get these processes right. We've obviously not succeeded. Here's, I, I, we'll open the books, come in, please look at everything and help us now with strong recommendations that we can implement. And we should do the same, you know, in other words, let's get them in to help us with this, um, not begrudge um, the fact that they're investigating us. But, um, you know, it is a low moment when the Accords and Human Rights Commission are investigating the Labour Party. I mean, the, the only other party that investigated was the BNP. Yeah. And not even to this extent. Yeah. Um, so, interesting times ahead. I but mean, that, that's why our response really matters. You know. If we say, look, we, we, whatever we try to do, we haven't got this right. Um, we've tried to change processes, and we have. Jenny Formby's changed the processes, tried to um, streamline things, get cases moving more quickly, keep a better account of what cases there are. All that change has happened, but still we've got problems. Say to the Court of Human Rights Commission, you know, here's the data, here's the people, interview who you like, look at what documents you want, have a conversation with us, and tell us, um, if you can, where you see things going wrong so that we can do something about it. I, I mean... Arrest people? I mean, you know, if the law's been broken, then that would involve people being arrested, perhaps. Well, I, I, I think, actually, this is about the internal disciplinary process. If there's any question of the law being broken, then the, the police have to look at that, which is a completely different matter. This is, this is about how a party deals with upholding its own laws and uh, the internal processes, and, and that is something where the Equalities and Human Rights Commission ought to be able to help us. Okay, uh, right, let's take some questions from the audience. You have a roving mic. If you indicate clearly, we'll get a microphone to you if you let us know uh, your name and if you can answer one sentence questions and one sentence answers. I'll take the gentleman bang in the middle there. Just wait for the microphone to come. Here we go. Thank you, thank you. Um, so, as a Remainer voter, I find it very disingenuous that the Labour Party would stick to the six tests of. Uh, whether they'd agree to, the, uh, to, 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 to a Brexit or not, simply because the six tests don't stand up. And I'm surprised that you actually hold out that they do. The Singles Customs Union cannot and will not be accepted by the EU when you are not in the EU. And that seems to be a direct contradiction. Yet you seem to be very much uh, holding your six tests. I just find it ridiculous. I don't agree with you. I totally don't agree with you. I've, I've talked it through with Michel Barnier. Um, and I said to him directly, um, as a um, country that has left um, the EU, we can't be in the customs union, obviously, because in the customs union, um, the council 
um, sets the mandate for the Commission to do trade negotiations and Parliament then votes on it. So if you're not a member, you can't be in the customs union. But I said we want to be in a customs union that has exactly the same benefits. And can we talk with you about what that would look like for a third party, a third country that wants to be in a customs union with the um, EU, so it'd be an EU-UK customs union, delivering the same benefits. Is that a discussion we can have? And he said yes. And we need to talk, out what, talk about what the governance arrangements would be, um, how you'd influence trade policy, etc. So I, dis I, I don't agree with the argument that it's impossible to achieve this with the political will to do it. And I say that as someone who's actually spoken directly across the table with Michelle Barney about whether that would be negotiable. He's already refused it. No, he hasn't. He's told me that that's negotiable to my face. <laughs> there you go. I, I mean, been, I've had no, no end of meetings with him and his team. Um, and, and, I, and, to be, and to be honest, I would never have surfaced it as a position for the Labour Party if I didn't think it was negotiable. I felt it very, I felt very strongly that I should raise it with Michel Barnier first to, to get clearance from him and his team that that is something the EU would um, negotiate if that was the clear policy objective of the UK. And he said to me, yes, it's not without, it's not without I'm not going to pretend as Liam Fox did that it would be the easiest thing in human history because you are trying to configure something which doesn't yet exist but replicates the way the customs union works. But um, he's a pretty good authority on whether the EU would negotiate that since he was the chief negotiator. Okay, I think the, the lady on the end there had a question, was that right? No. Oh, no? <laughs> I thought there was an arm in the air there, sorry. Is, it, is that right? Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, keep your hand up because un under the lights it's hard to see. Sorry, lovely. There we go. Hi, Keir. Hi. Would you agree that the next leader of the Labour Party needs to be a woman? And if you do... Do you agree that it should be Emily Thornbury? <laughs> <laughs> well, a real, a real one-two of a question. Um, uh, look, I, I actually do feel very strong that we ought to be able to produce a woman leader of the Labour Party. And I think when the Tories say to us, we've had two women leaders, in fact, two um, women prime ministers, that's a very, very strong challenge um, to us. But obviously, we're going to have to wait and see in what circumstances this comes about, when it comes about, and who the candidates are. But as for the challenge, I think it's a strong challenge to us that we ought to have a woman. And um, Emily would be a strong candidate? Well, there'll be a number of candidates. <laughs> <laughs> Take that how you will. Uh, uh, any questions over here? Oh, was there? oh, yes, the lady down the front. OK. Sorry, I've got... Again, then I'll take you down the front. Yeah, uh, yeah sorry. Just want to say, um, it seems inevitable that you're going to come out uh, to be Remain. Do you think the longer you take to come out of that position, the less likely people are to take you seriously when you do? I worry about that. Um, I do think, I mean, I, I've been clear that um, we, I, I would vote and campaign for Remain if there was a further referendum, for all the reasons I set out earlier, because I truly believe that's the, the best deal that we can have. Um, I think it's, um, it's obviously a discussion going on within the party, but you know, we've got to slightly get real about this. If there's going to be another referendum, it's going to be between whatever deal or no deal the next Tory Prime Minister is putting forward or remain. Um, and it seems to me blindingly obvious, certainly what I would do in those circumstances. I can't see myself going out, knocking on doors, saying, uh, would you vote for um, Boris Johnson's deal? I think it's rather good. <laughs> or, or for no deal. But um, I personally think, um, we should campaign for Remain and try to make that as, uh, uh, as strong as I can. And um, I do think the speed is of the essence here. 
Because it does feel that something has shifted, and, and obviously those European election results were a kind of a post, a fence, a, a kind of a, a milepost. Um, that people actually, once they get into the habit of not voting Labour, it's hard to get them back. Yeah, this is this is a real concern. I mean, you know, there's no question that in those EU elections, lots of Labour voters deserted us for other parties. Um, most of the analysis shows that for every one voter we lost to the Brexit party, we lost three to Remain parties. And, I, and, and, you know, and I had people to my face telling me that across the country, that that's what they were going to do, and that's um, a real problem for any political party. Um, you know, particularly um, in Scotland, to lose so heavily, it's hard to make up that ground. In Wales, to lose to Plaid, um, but also for better or for worse, voting Lib Dem had become toxic for people on the left in politics, broadly speaking, because of austerity and, uh, and, and what they did with the Conservative government. And, and now people have got over that, then um, that isn't so toxic, because you've already done it once. Um, and equally for the Greens, um, there was a Green surge in 2015, people remember. What Jeremy Corbyn did was to pull that Green vote into the Labour Party. Um, and some of those people have come back to the so it's not, it's not as easy as you might think. This, this vote doesn't just... You, know, you can't make assumptions about how people are going to vote next time. You've actually got to fight for that vote. Um, and, um, you know, that's a pretty fundamental thing. OK, the final question of the night to the, uh, to the lady in the front row. The microphone's just coming now. Let's know your name and your question. OK, my name is Julie, civil servant. Very important. Um, what do you do to relax? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, the two things I do most are a football. I'm, you know, uh, an Arsenal season ticket holder. Uh, I know that's, that's at least half the audience gone, if not more. <laughs> she said to relax. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very quiet. If, if you go to the Emirates, it's nice and quiet. We don't like too much noise whilst we're reading The Guardian, whilst the game's on. <laughs> Keep the noise down. Um, and, and I play football. And, and then we got... Two kids, a ten-year-old and eight-year-old, and, and that's—I mean, I wouldn't say relaxing, but it certainly fills that. I don't paint. I don't paint or make buses. No, what an odd man, Boris Johnson. Is. <laughs> <laughs> and that's putting it kindly. Um, obviously, there's a, there's a similar question to that that's been put to a lot of the Tory leadership candidates about previous drug use. Um, have you, ever, have you ever dabbled? I've got the perfect alibi here because if anybody ever turns anything up, I'll just say it was Paul Bin. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, w w given that it could be Paul Bin, <laughs> did, you ever, did you ever try it? I mean, at university, you must have had a. I mean, you, where were you in the nineties? You must have been doing pills every week. <laughs> I was studying in the law library at all times. <laughs> <laughs> studying in the law library, is it? <laughs> Learning your lines. Learning. <laughs> <laughs> Cheap shot. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, as always, thank you so much for coming down. Um, but Keir, honestly, you've been one of the best guests we've ever had down here. Thanks for having it's, me. It's been a phenomenal night. Let's have a Keir Starmer. Well, there you go, Keir Starmer. When you think about it purely in terms of time, I mean, it's remarkable that four years ago he wasn't even leader of the Labour Party and now 
he is on the brink of becoming the next Prime Minister with a commanding lead in every poll going. Um, it just goes to show. And, and I think you can see, listening to that interview, the steel that exists within him, the, the fire in the belly, as well as the, the intellect, the, the political sense, all the things that have made him such an asset to Labour are, are all present there. But um, only four years ago, that feels like it was a completely different world. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, next week, I shall uh, select another uh, uh, great interview from the history of the show. Um, and as always, please leave a five-star written review, share it, tell your friends about it, and I'll see you next time. Ta-ra! Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.